Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Fearing deflation and eager to sponsor growth post the GFC, central banks around the world became a near-permanent fixture in markets, gathering vast stockpiles of risk-free assets. Few were more impactful in determining clearing prices than was the ECB. With this in mind, it was a pleasure to welcome Alfonso Pecatiello, founder of the Macro Compass, to the podcast. Our conversation is one part retrospective, looking back on the period between 2013 and 2019, when interest rates in the Eurozone descended to shockingly low and negative levels. Alf shares his views on the trade-offs in seeking favorable risk-adjusted carry in such a low-rate regime, making the point that it's important to identify and understand the capital that serves to sponsor the trade alongside you. We touch on some of the unique political considerations for risk assets in Europe as well, and here, Alf looks back on a shock to Italian markets that materialized in May of 2018 as fears advanced that a Eurosceptic government coalition could seek to abandon the euro. We also survey the uncertainties today, focusing on the risks that may result from nominal yields in Italy approaching 4%. From ALF's perspective, while there is plenty of negative sentiment, one can argue that the price of risk does not fully reflect the degree of economic and financial vulnerability resulting from the combination of inflation and the risks of energy prices. Lastly, we touch on ALF's efforts at the Macro Compass, the newsletter he launched to share his insights on the big picture of risk and play a role in financial education. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Alfonso Pecatiello. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Alfonso Pecatiello. He's a gentleman with expertise in fixed income and macro, and also the founder of the Macro Compass, an extremely widely consumed newsletter focusing on the big picture of macro markets. Alpha, it's great to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Well, Dean, I have to say I'm honored to be here, a listener of every single episode of the Alpha Exchange. Very interesting to be on the guest seat this time. Well, I am excited to have this conversation as well, and we'll have no problem consuming an hour just in terms of your thoughts on the present day of risk, and we'll also look back a little bit. I think we can learn a bunch from just assessing previous periods where markets became disrupted, which is where we might be right now. So let's get our conversation underway and learn a little bit more about your background, your early days and start in the industry. Tell us just about your career trajectory, how you got to where you are now. My career, interestingly, starts probably at 15 years old, which is an interesting statement, but it comes from the fact that my mother is the treasurer of a small Italian bank, a local Italian bank. So I was basically exposed to see these BTP futures charts and FTSE mid futures at lunch. She was checking markets. Markets don't take a lunch break. I was very curious and asking her, what the hell is that? She was trying to explain and I didn't understand anything, but I was a very curious guy. So I started to read on the topic of finance in general. And then as the university career progressed, I definitely became interested in markets. And I had this very early nurture basically of exposure somehow to instruments and markets, which kind of sparked that adolescent curiosity, if you wish. And then from there, well, of course, a university trajectory with quantitative finance background and some good macroeconomic courses, I have to say, but then led me to enter the business in 2013, 
with ING, which is a Dutch-based bank, but actually a global bank. And I've been with them between 2013 and 2021, so for eight to nine years, running effectively portfolios for, for the bank, mostly fixed income portfolios. So my bread and butter is rates and credits. But later on during the Monday, as my career progressed all the way to managing a 20 billion book for them, it became a multi-asset global macro mandate, which is what I did for the last three and a half to four years at ING. And then since then, I left in December 2021. And in 2022, I started sharing my views with the broader audience through the Macro Compass newsletter, through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media accounts. Excellent. Well, we'll have plenty to talk about just in terms of your efforts on the Macro Compass side. You've established quite a presence there, both through that newsletter, but also on Twitter itself. So you mentioned 2013. Let's go back a little bit and One of the things I find, and I certainly experienced it myself, is that your early days in the business can be pretty formative. It's kind of what you see when you first hit the scene in terms of markets that can really color your views or shape your philosophy. For me, it was more the mid-90s and events like the Asian contagion or certainly long-term capitals unwind were pretty formative for me. And so for you, starting in 2013... I'm thinking the Eurozone crisis was past its apex. Maybe that was 2011 and Draghi came on and by mid-2012 had really asserted the power of the central bank and maybe a, a philosophy that said, look, we can put this fire out if we truly want to. But there were plenty of ongoing tremors, I think, after 2012, 2013, 2014. There were Greece 1, Greece 2, Greece 3. Tell us a little bit about just being on the scene during that period of, let's call it, miserable growth around the world, low growth, low inflation, and certainly a growth shortfall in Europe, but maybe not crisis. What'd that look like for you in terms of the early days? So the first thing I learned, Dean, was that a lot of people were humbled by what happened. If you would try to ask somebody before the European debt crisis whether they had to mark down their Greek, Portuguese, Italian, Spanish holdings, bond holdings, down by a very substantial amount and incurring in billions of losses in banking books in Europe, everybody would have told you that you're crazy. But that's exactly what happened instead. Banks had to take billions in losses and they actually had to clean up their books for years to come because while the most liquid stuff was gone, and I mean government bonds that were sold to sometimes even to domestic central banks that were able to buy them back. Those bonds were sold at massive losses, but those were the liquid government bonds, the most illiquid mortgage-backed securities or in general asset-backed securities that were issued by these peripheral countries and guaranteed by relatively inconsistent credit had a much harder time being disposed. So I entered the business as a young guy that thought could own the world. Then I saw gray-haired, very experienced people that were pretty much humbled by what happened. The first thing that shaped my mentality was that the mentor that I was lucky enough to have immediately taught me the value of listening to people who have seen much more than you have and have gone through different market regimes compared to you. Maybe you have read about those in books, but you haven't gone through them. So the value of listening and the value of being curious and asking and talking to the smartest guys out there was the first thing I was taught. And I'm still grateful for that because it was a great lesson and really helped shape my risk framework as well. Which brings us to one ball event, I think, being that really 
I found really fascinating. So we have to move a little bit forward. So between 2014 and say 2017, Europe was effectively in a slowing real growth environment. So where real growth was mildly positive, but the secondary negative was downward sloping. We were barely growing. Globalization was all over the place. We had outsourced all supply chains we could. Energy was getting cheaper and cheaper. So the business models that effectively relied on producing decent quality goods through very cheap energy, say Germany, for example, or any very open economy, were working pretty okay. But nevertheless, because of aging population, technology advance, etc., the level of real output growth was relatively contained. And on top of it, interest rates were as low as they could. And most importantly, volatility was as low as you could imagine. So if you systematically sold straddles of volatility in European rates, basically between, you can say, 2016 and 2018, you consistently made money simply because not much happened the whole time. On top of it, quantitative easing was running. So it was a period where a lot of experienced investors were scarred by the debt crisis but they were learning again that the carry available by selling volatility or simply buying credit was too good to be left on the table again. So this process took a while between 2013 and 2018 to keep going, but around 2016, once QE had really taken the stage again and vol was crushing lower and lower, more and more people were sucked back in. And before I continue with the vol event, I just wanna maybe stop here because I guess you'll have some questions or comments about this environment. Well, it is really interesting to kind of step back and maybe look at Europe and maybe more specifically risk prices. So you mentioned selling vol. We know the characteristics of vol trades are win most of the time, but have some asymmetric risk of loss. And I think what we were forced to learn over sort of that period, let's say the post-global financial crisis period, and then perhaps after the European sovereign crisis fizzled out, at least the apex of it, is that the central banks can kind of overwhelm markets. They got used to it. And certainly in Europe, maybe more so than any other market, the ECB's ability to impose really an artificial set of prices that were in a lot of ways non-economic just became something that investors had to accept. And then I think what you're pointing to, and I'd love for you to reflect on this, is not just to accept that maybe these prices are artificial, but they're sustainable at an artificial level. And maybe it's they're actionable, that you have to step in and try to generate profits based on this set of prices. Reflect back on just the evolution of how investors and folks like you thought about those prices and just how the ECB interacted or maybe created those prices. So one good example would be the power of carry. I would call it like that. So what happened, Dean, is as the central bank was embarking on quantitative easing, commercial banks in Europe had their bonds taken away, basically forcefully taken away from their banking books, and in exchange, they received bank reserves. And these bank reserves are basically a token that regulation makes very convenient from a liquidity perspective, but you can't do much with those can just basically park them back at the central bank, which wasn't a very rewarding exercise at some point due to negative deposit rates at the ECB. Or alternatively, you can try to recycle them back through the interbank financial system by lending them away, doing the reverse repo, 
buying bonds from another bank and paying them with reserves, but those are effectively tokens that are stuck in the interbank system. The central bank only decides how many reserves there are at any point in time for the aggregate commercial banking system. But in true quantitative easing, they were basically telling every European bank that there would be more bank reserves available in the banking system. So one bank can try to push them out to another bank, but in aggregate, the level will be high and increasing. And the level of collateral and bonds available to the system will be lower and lower because the central bank will lock some bonds on their balance sheet. And they will continue to do so by doing QE. This was the message. And so at the beginning, I think, let's say 2015, early 2016, most banks were pretty happy to actually sell some risk from the book and get the reserve levels higher and lock in some profit and loss and some profits actually that they've done by buying bonds earlier and selling them back to the central bank. But as time progressed, the time value of having these reserves on your balance sheet became more and more punitive and the value of, let's say, the opportunity cost of leaving carry on the table became more and more difficult to stomach for many senior managers and risk takers in the industry. And so that's what I mean with the power of carry. It's all about incentive schemes. That's one of the first big lessons. As we are effectively in a hyper-financialized world where the use of leverage is very large and the use of debt and credit, generally speaking, has grown exponentially since the 80s, it is clear that when you suppress volatility through quantitative easing and you basically flush the system with bank reserves, you will, over time, incentivize more than linearly these banks to try and put some risk back to work. And so there will be the more brave banks that would say, well, let's go first and let's recycle some risk back. We still have scars from the European debt crisis, but we're going to start buying some Spanish government bonds, or maybe let's start from France or some place where we feel a bit more comfortable we can embark credit. Let's buy some investment-grade corporate bonds, for example, in our book. But then what happens is that as the first guy starts and it compounds the process of central banks bidding the very same bonds, the very same credit spreads, it's a virtuous circle for credit spreads. They become tighter and tighter, and every sell-off is bought back by a new investor, which is feeling the pressure of having these bank reserves and not recycling them back into credit spread and risk. And you can see where I'm going. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of lower and lower credit spreads, of lower and lower realized bowl, which then gets priced in lower and lower implied bowl, because people who are buying volatility actually just realize they're bleeding premium. They're never going to be making money because there is a horde of investors that are just waiting for that sell-off to recycle risk. And that's where we went because of the incentive scheme and because of the market structure in Europe between 2016 and late 2017. You mentioned 2016, and of course, Brexit was June of 2016. It was Certainly a seminal event from a risk standpoint, there was a lot there. There was this correlation between, let's say, the euro stocks and the euro. That was an interesting correlation that wasn't kind of priced by the market. Of course, maybe the epicenter of that risk event was British pound vol. I just remember that got to outrageous levels. Short dated vol got super, super high. And then in the aftermath of Brexit, once the smoke cleared, and of course, there was a lot of ongoing legal work to do in terms of how this was to be orchestrated. But the market dust-up part of it was really 
maybe a two to three week thing. Things kind of started to settle down by maybe mid-July. But in the aftermath were these impossibly low rates. It was really the first lurch towards even the long-dated part of some of these European bond curves getting so well bid that these rates got so low. And one of the things, and I'd love for you just to reflect back on this, but one of the things I caught just in terms of reading about that event was that as rates went lower and lower, the demand for duration actually increased. It was this price agnostic, price indifferent capital. I remember the BIS put out a report talking about Swiss life insurers, German life insurers, these folks didn't really care that the prices seemed so non-economic. They were just trying to solve an asset liability matching problem. I thought that was quite fascinating that the demand for something can get so strong even as the price goes up. What was that like? Just in, if you can think back to that period after Brexit when rates got really low, what were some of the activities you saw just in terms of market participants and you and your team in terms of what you guys were doing? Brilliant question, Dean, because we cover the pro-cyclicality of investors and their mentality and their incentive schemes when it comes to basically going after the cycle rather than being, let's say, more selective, being sucked in into the same trade because of low vol. The other important thing is to understand incentive schemes of large, let's say, price, macro price insensitive or macro condition insensitive buyers. And those can be a bunch and they can be huge, Dean. So uh, let's start from, let's say, uh, pension funds. Let's talk about pension funds for a second, but then I want to talk about bank books as well because they're very important. But if you're a pension fund, what has happened in the European pension fund industry is that basically, especially Dutch pension funds, but also Nordics in general and German insurance as well, have basically refused to close their duration gaps over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. The reason was that close your interest rate gap, you lock in effectively what is the interest rate that you're buying 30-year bonds at or receiving 30-year swaps at. And many, let's say, old-school seasoned risk-taker and decision-maker in this industry decided or had a clear view that buying a 30-year German government bond at 3% or receiving a 30-year swap roughly higher than that, a bit higher than that, wasn't good enough as a long-term return to lock in to close these interest rate gaps that they run on their balance sheet because of the nature of the business. So if you think about the liability side of a pension fund that's all about servicing pension liabilities and pension contributions 30, 40 years from now, you naturally run a very long duration liability book that you will need to hedge somehow. The question is, when do you do it? At what price do you think that the interest rate risk is well covered? And for effectively a decade, pension funds and insurers had decided that this third-year yields of 3% weren't good enough. What that means is that you basically are left with an extremely large interest rate or duration gap that you're going to try and offset by enhancing your returns buying risk assets. So you're going to be trying and achieve a higher return target, say, by buying more credit spreads or buying more equities or more risk assets. But the moment that these interest rates start to drop at the very long end, what happens is that your imbalance becomes in mark-to-market terms larger and larger and larger again. So at some point, even if you don't want to do that, you are somehow forced to do that because your allocation to risk assets is maybe performing because let's not forget in 2017, credit spreads and equities were doing pretty well. 
but the mark-to-market of your interest rate gap, basically, on the liability side, because your short duration effectively becomes so punitive that your coverage ratio can drop below painful levels. And when it drops, or it, it, it let's say, it threatens to drop be- below those regulatory levels, you are forced to close these interest rate gaps. Whether you like it or not, you should have done it at 3%, but if 30 years swaps are now 1%, and that threatens your coverage ratio, you have to receive 30 years swaps or buy 30 year bonds at 1% yields. Now, the other example of macro insensitive buyers that we saw, we experienced, and many market makers out there also saw happening was in banking books. And there, the story is very interesting because banks were extending long mortgages. 10 year plus, 20 year, 30 year. The 30 year mortgage market in Europe wasn't really a thing before 2016, 2017, where it started, and now it's much more common. But as banks extended these very long mortgages and interest rates start to drop, and with them also mortgage rates dropped in, what happened is that quite a lot of prepayments were coming through. And banks weren't necessarily always prepared for these prepayments that would change the duration side of their modeled duration in their asset liability models. And so for the very same reason, they were once again forced to chase the market. As yields were rallying, they had to effectively buy those long-dated bonds or receive those long-dated swaps because their models weren't equipped to predict such a sharp drop in interest rates. Once again, banks didn't want to do that, didn't like to do that, but they were forced because the alternative was to effectively leave a large mark-to-market that was becoming bigger and bigger, and the mark-to-market losses were becoming greater and greater. And the last example of this would be 2019, where the drop when 30-year swap rates in Europe, 30-year OIS swap rates in Europe went negative. So if you think about it, an OIS swap rate is nothing else than the term structure of what the central bank deposit rate will be over time. So 30-year negative OIS swap rates in Europe effectively implied an ECB deposit rate to be negative forever. So this was the level that we reached. And the very reason why in 2019 that happened is also because banks all of a sudden realized that sold quite an optionality to customers because customers weren't charged negative interest rates on their deposit accounts, but banks were paying a negative 50 basis point to the European Central Bank for now a couple of years already. And as this got priced in to basically be there for five years or 10 years, at some point, banks realized they effectively had sold floors to depositors, to customers all over Europe. And what that led to was, again, a rush to try and close that optionality risk, which all of a sudden was becoming more and more relevant. Again, banks didn't like that. Pension funds didn't like to do that either. But they are, as you said correctly, macro-insensitive buyers. Many times they are caught in these situations and they can't just avoid them. Yeah, it's interesting you pointed 2019. Of course, the low, let's say, in 10-year German rates was COVID. So that's unsurprising. It looks like about minus 86 basis points. But that summer, late summer of 2019, we got to about minus 70 in 10-year Germany, which was just a fascinating time. And It's just really interesting to just consider the ripple effects. So you're talking about mortgages. These are households. There was plenty of stories about the Danish mortgage struck at a negative level. But these prices permeate in so many other vehicles. I just can recall talking to folks about pricing options on stocks like Nestle 
It's a Swiss stock. So you take your rate curve and you push it out five or 10 years, and that's the input into your call option pricing model. So you have this deeply discounted forward. Vol was low as well. And you get some prices for long dated call options, which you really can't believe. And they really are more a function of the forward than the vol, but they are head scratchers nonetheless. What just in terms of, we're going to talk about the here and now with Germany now 1.5% and climbing and Italian spreads have widened out quite a bit. So it's so much different now. But just going back then, if we can just spend a little bit more time to gather some insights from you on the ecosystem of pricing and decision-making that comes about when not just deposit rates are minus 50, but the long end of the curve, let's just start maybe with Germany because it's all priced off that, can be negative and sometimes deeply negative. What are some of the implications for that? You talked about carry as well. Just how do people trade and risk manage and try to generate carry in a world where long-dated rates are negative? Great question, Dean. And let me start with a funny, but very applicable and interesting example. So real money accounts all over the world start from very simple strategies. And one of it back then was that because ECB interest rates were negative and banks held very large amounts of bank reserves, charged negative rates at the European Central Bank, actually at the domestic central bank, whatever the country was in Europe, actually many banks started investigating whether turning those reserves, at least for a portion, into physical cash and storing them into a vault would actually save them money. So I was involved in a project that tried to estimate how many bills could we fit in X cubic square meters, cubic meters. Can you imagine that? And actually, you have to go through the insurance costs and the transportation costs and the viability of that. And also, I remember that many banks and many other treasurers I was, I was talking to were involved in the, let's say, exercise of filling the ATM machines with as much cash as they could, as the machine could physically handle. And again, that's because physical cash was not charged negative interest rates while digital bank reserves were actually charged negative interest rates. So just to start by saying that once you impose for long enough negative carry, as I would say, the theta, the time value of this punishment and this monetary repression is very important together with the level, of course, of financial repression and monetary repression. But the time component is also important because if it goes longer than maybe one or two years, accounts will become created. So this was one of the ways. The other more obvious way was once you effectively to make carry or static returns, let's say, there are two ways. The first is to extend, let's say, the volatility adjusted risk that you take in interest rates. So just take more risk and buy more two-year, five-year bonds. If forwards are upward sloping, but you think the ECB will never be able to hike, you can just lock in these forwards and carry them all the way to maturity. That's one way. But once, as you said, even 30 years swap rates went to negative territory, there is very, very little carry left in interest rates. So what is the other source of static returns for these real money investors? Credit, obviously. And so the market pricing and the structure becomes as such that the guys who got in earlier in this credit spread trades were the, the guys rewarded the most. But there is no space for everybody to get in at juicy credit spreads. Credit spreads tighten in. And so what it means is that over time, many investors will actually stress out 
all the way to become what I call macro tourists in certain asset classes. So if a longer enough period between their European debt crisis cars or their great financial crisis cares actually had enough time and had gone through, you actually saw European investors in early 2019 exploring again CLOs or highly, highly leveraged private and public structures to make sure they could lock in some credit spreads. So the market structure becomes as such that everybody's trying to chase the last basis point effectively of carry. I remember myself looking at trades that could maybe make three, four basis point of carry and roll per three months. So we're talking about taking a relatively large amount of leverage to try and lock in few basis points of carry for the next three months, because when measured against the levels of implied and realized volatility on a short data set of maybe three to five years, they looked pretty attractive. The sharp ratio coming out was very good because there was no volatility. And now, can you imagine what happens then when every investor is sucked in exactly into the same kind of mentality, starting from turning digital bank reserves into physical cash to avoid that penalty of minus 50 basis points to the ECB, all the way to locking in as many interest rate forwards as you can, as long as they're upward sloping, to buying credit all the way to CLOs. So if you think back of the herd mentality that was back then, it's quite impressive. You use the term risk-adjusted carry, and I think this is a good opportunity to maybe survey the philosophy in place at the ECB. So starting in 2013, Draghi is at the helm. He had a very different, I would say, more market-friendly in some ways, maybe more finance-friendly approach than Trichet had. He certainly believed in the power of the central bank. And you've watched that evolve. And as you think about just trying to generate carry in an environment where there is a lot of risk in the world, but the central banks, at least for periods of time, can put that risk at bay. Talk to us about that, that period where you knew these prices weren't exactly honest from an economic standpoint, but you also knew that the ECB had the ability and also the willingness to impose itself on those prices. What's that trade-off and just how much does an investor like yourself lean into the philosophy in place at the central bank in terms of holding things together? It's an extremely hard balance to keep. But again, one must remember what are the incentive schemes of real money hedge funds in general. And so portfolio managers are not paid to sit and do nothing, first of all. So recycling risk is kind of a mantra, and it's basically a must. And so you can stay away from this no-ball, and you can try to resist being sucked in this kind of trades for only as long. If you don't manage to generate PL as a hedge fund manager, you'll be fired. It's very simple. So effectively, what it became back then, I remember, was a game of trying to understand where the risk-adjusted carry was still relatively attractive, at least on on a relative basis against any other carry trade that was available out there. Let, let me make an example. In the beginning of 2019, Spanish government bonds were still offering, again, relatively attractive entry point when it comes to carry. And the game was all about anticipating who the next buyer could be. So next marginal buyer in such a market, which was at the forefront of the European debt crisis in 2012, the next marginal buyer can be exactly that investor, which is 
not very fond of getting involved in an asset class he doesn't really know very well, but he's very attracted to the carry. And so you should understand whether basically the cards are all aligned for him to invest. And that investor in 2019 was Japanese real money accounts. So Japan has been basically a low ball rates market forever. And Japan has always been a country that has accumulated large capital, basically, to be invested abroad somehow. And they've been pioneers in investing in Australian bonds, in US bonds, in US equities, in European bonds and equities, et cetera, et cetera. Their approach to taking risk, if you talk to a Japanese investor, has never been like, I want to be the first one exploring this new fancy credit structure you guys have created, not really. A Japanese investor wants to understand as much as he can the risk is taking and wants to keep things relatively close to home, which means really understanding what kind of bond is investing in. And Spain wasn't necessarily something he understood. I mean, it was something that he had in the books maybe in 2012, he had to mark down, and he really didn't understand the business model until he did. And so in 2019, there was no carry left in European bonds, basically, because of rating as well. It was much more difficult to approach for an institutional Asian investor. But Spain was getting upgraded towards the A area in terms of ratings. And so one of the considerations back then, rather than looking at the fundamentals, rather than looking necessarily at current account deficits or budget deficits or other things, there were basically two dynamics you have to try and anticipate. The first is screen all other investors around the world, which are starting for carry because there is nothing else to buy when it comes to risk-free, decent volatility adjusted instruments you can buy and try to understand who the next buyer can be in which particular asset class. And so if you did your analysis well and or you were lucky, which is always important in the market, you'd anticipate billions and billions and billions in flows that effectively realized from Japanese real money accounts into Spanish government bonds I remember in in June and July 2019, the motto in European bond markets was wake up, buy Spanish government bonds, sell them to Japanese accounts, go to the golf course. Same again the morning after. Well, it's interesting. You're pointing to this concept that a good trade has obviously got to have a fundamental underpinning, but it also has got to have the right kind of sponsorship. And you've got to be aware of how that sponsorship is evolving, where it's coming from, how long dated the sponsorship might be, what's the reaction function of the sponsorship. And that's what I'd like to ask you about is just on this concept of crowding. Certainly in the Eurozone debt crisis that was 2011, 2012, that spiraling of risk spreads was certainly part economic. We got information in 2010 that Greece was not on the up and up in terms of the economics of the country in terms of the fiscal side. But then there was really a crisis of confidence and the speed with which things moved really suggested that folks were getting out of crowded positions and they were doing so in a hurry. And that's really what vol events are about. It's the market prices having to adjust because people's reaction functions are similar and maybe positioning got crowded. Talk to us a little bit about that, just in terms of understanding who's in a trade with you and how that might create vulnerabilities and how you have to be watchful in terms of the capital that's alongside your own capital. So one clear example of that was 2018 in Italy, where, again, it wasn't a stretch this 2019, but still you have had basically between 2015 and 2017, almost three full years of 
low and declining vol, of carry being available to be harvested, of bank reserves increasing in the system. So you've had a very fertile ground for people trying to invest even in Italian government bonds, although they were necessarily fond of the credit, but because of the good carry available, some investors actually went back in. Now, early 2018, in May, actually, Italy had elections and there was a surprise result where at the beginning, the parliament seemed pretty fragmented. So the ability to create a government was, was pretty complicated and the odds were in favor of a fragmented government. But all of a sudden, in May 2018, the two most Euro-unfriendly parties came up to a surprise agreement that almost nobody expected. And all of a sudden, the most unfriendly Eurocritics Italian government ever, basically, was formed straight away in a week. Now, can you imagine all the macro tourists that went and buy Italian government bonds for carry reading the headlines? The headlines were not like, hey, there is a chance that these guys will become unfriendly towards Europe. The headlines were like, Italy is investigating ways to redenominate their debt in lira. So we're talking about basically a default event on one of the largest bond markets in the world. And so mayhem just ensued. Two-year Italian bonds at no bid, anything that was front-end, so basically at higher risk of default when it comes to basically the time of default was closer, basically at no bid anymore, zero. Billions and billions were flushed through the futures, billions and billions equivalents of notional Italian government bonds were flushed through the BTP future in a day. You have had a situation where the market was completely broken because there was no marginal buyer, basically no marginal buyer in the market. And the people who were exposed to that risk, and they had become the marginal buyer between 2015 and 2017, really couldn't either understand or stomach the risk that was in front of them. So this is the typical jump risk which sits in every carry trade. When you are basically modeling your carry based on implied and realized volatility over the last two, three years, one year, whatever you do, and that sample period shows very little though, which makes you more comfortable then your sharp ratio will look okay. And then all of a sudden you have a jump risk. You have something you haven't predicted, something that isn't in your sample. And the carry that you're harvesting all of a sudden becomes irrelevant against the level of realized volatility, which is a multiple of the one you have projected. In many risk management models, but also in the incentive scheme of many macro tourists that have bought enough that they really don't know well, the only option you have to survive in your seat is to get out as soon as you can. And then the effect becomes that the door is way too tiny and narrow for everybody to get out at the same time. So if I look at the time series of, let's say, the spread of 10-year Italy versus Germany, and I found that spread's got some interesting characteristics. It's sort of, at different points in time, has a VIX-like characteristic. If we map that spread in 2011, let's say, versus the VIX, you'd see a very positive correlation. And then as the fire was put out, maybe by 2012 and 13, it was non-responsive. It really was unrelated to macro risk factors. So it kind of comes and goes. But it looks like 100 bips is probably the kind of low over time. And then as you pointed to in 2018, it gets to 300 plus, comes back down, obviously spiked out during COVID, got back down to 100 in late 2020 through 2021. And now it's on the rise again, but that's just the spread. Now you've got the base level of German rates is outrageously higher 
than it was even at the start of the year. So the nominal level of Italian rates is quite high, approaching 4%. And so I'd love for you to just reflect on that. We'll talk a little bit more about the here and now of risk, but just given your background and knowledge of both Italian politics and markets, talk to us about the BTP market. What should an outsider who's trying to understand the big picture of risk know about how this is trading, what the implications are? Are there spillover risks? Give us some of your perspective on this market. So the BTP market, the Italian government bond market, is very large, deep, and liquid. It has a very liquid repo market as well, underpinning it, which makes it very friendly and liquid to trade. And it used to be populated mostly by domestic investors. And it's now populated by a mix of, well, the European Central Bank, which owns a large amount of the outstanding debt, top of my head, above 20%, think even above 30% by now. So it, it has basically locked away quite a decent portion of BTPs, but the net issuance of these bonds is pretty decent year after year, which means you get new inflow of collateral to, to trade with, basically. So liquidity has never been a problem, ongoing liquidity. The, the investor set has become more diversified from the local domestic bank system, which always had a, a large ownership of Italian government bonds. And think about it, then, if you're a domestic bank, even if Italy would decide to re-denominate that then also all your liabilities would be re-denominated. Or most of them, which are domestic liabilities, would be re-denominated as well. So you don't get that kind of inherent effects re-denomination risk that could be priced in with a small probability, but still people should keep it in mind. If you are a German bank and you bought Italian government bonds, your deposits are theoretically in Deutschmark and your assets will be in Italian lira. Now that's a different story than being an Italian bank with a deposit base, which will be also redenominated in Italian lira in case Italy walks out of the Eurozone. So domestic investors, because of this structure and because of the incentive schemes from a regulation standpoint, were always a large component of this market over the last five to seven years because of, generally speaking, some periods of friendly political developments in Italy, often interrupted by some crisis, but generally speaking, a decent direction from that perspective also, other European investors became buyers of Italian government bonds. So I'm talking about Nordics, I'm talking about German banks, French banks, Dutch banks, etc., to a certain extent. And also foreign investors started doubling into Italian bonds a bit more. So right now, it's more of a diversified investor base with a very liquid and deep repo market and secondary market. It all seems palatable as a market to invest in. The problem is that because of the setup of the European structure, which basically has one monetary policy authority for 19 different jurisdictions, while it has 19 different jurisdictions enacting different reforms, different fiscal policies, different political decisions. It is a very inherently fragile structure. And an inherently fragile structure tends to have release valves which are often triggered when there is a problem. So problems in Europe tend to boil under the surface for a long time. And then once the pressure becomes strong enough, there has to be a release valve. So now we have the energy situation in Europe. And basically, Europe is facing what I call a very similar situation to an emerging market exogenous shock. So if you think about it, the emerging markets are often faced with external shocks that they cannot easily solve with policymakers' decisions, be it monetary or fiscal policy decisions, 
if an emerging market is highly dependent on dollar liabilities or dollar flows, or a large energy importer, it's a large food importer, and there is an external shock, it doesn't matter if the central bank will try to stem outflows, at least at the very early stages, if real rates are turning to positive territory or monetary policy becomes tighter or fiscal policy intervenes, because of the nature of the exogenous shock, which is not in the direct control of policymakers, any reaction they will have will sort of not generate much returns. And Europe sits in a very similar situation today, which is interesting for a developed market. Europe has become completely dependent from Russian energy, or mostly dependent from Russian energy, and the leverage of this dependence is very large. So I think Zoltan Posar put out an article in April 2022 where he, he estimated that the German total value added that depends from a very small portion of market value of natural gas imports is extremely large. So the leverage into this dependence is also very big. And now that this dependence is getting challenged, there is only so much that the central bank or fiscal authorities can do to sort out the situation over the very long term. And so if you sit in a fragile architecture and the pressure is, is boiling up, what happens is that there will be a release valve. And the release valve tend to be the weakest links within that structure. And Italy tends to be one of the weakest links because of its very low productivity, terrible demographics, poor reforms being enacted over the last 20 years, actually not many reforms being done at all, high level of public debt, pretty decent private sector balance sheet, but pretty high level of public debt. And so Italy tends to be one of the release valves together with the euro in this case, because terms of trade are terrible in the eurozone right now. And so this is a market that has inherent pretty decent features to be a liquid and palatable market for a lot of investors. It also represents one of the release valves of their imperfect architecture, which is the eurozone. We look at these market prices all day long, and I think if you look at them for long enough over time, what you gain an appreciation for is that, just to use that word again, they're fragile. They sometimes present themselves as stable and can be stable for periods of time, but suddenly become vulnerable to just gapping out. The Japanese yen is weaker and weaker. We're watching the British pound sell off. And then in just in the BTP market with nominal 10-year rates approaching 4%, it's hard not to step back. And with the experience of these events where the models fail us, and we're told that the improbable from a statistical standpoint has happened again and again, frame that for us. When you kind of step back and look at this set of prices, and you mentioned the energy crisis as well, there's an inflation crisis, there's just a lot of things happening at once. Is there a silver lining here that maybe people might be missing? Put on maybe both your optimistic hat and then an assessment of where those fragilities might lie as well. Let's talk about Europe for a second to close the the chapter there and also then move maybe to broader macro conditions. So clearly when you form an opinion about an asset class, let's call it the euro or European assets right now, it's important to understand what's priced in rather than just make up your mind whether the situation is good or bad. It's all about whether it's good or bad relative to what's priced in. So if I look at a set of indicators from the eurozone, I think there is quite some pessimism being priced in, justified pessimism, if you ask me. Do I think there's a zombie apocalypse being priced in? Not really. So if I look at BTP boom spread as a measure of credit, 
it's widening pretty aggressively, but because of the potential ECB backstop, that hasn't been really clearly defined, but already the intention of the ECB to backstop the market, it hasn't really widened to extreme levels. Credit spreads in Europe are pretty wide, that's correct. But if I look at the CDS on investment grade financial paper being issued, so basically bank senior bonds, the credit spreads on those are widening. But again, we are only at 2016 levels. And in 2016, the global economy was slowing down, led by China. But right now, you would, under, you would argue maybe that the set of circumstances we're facing is harsher for a European bank, given its credit extension towards chemicals, auto, utilities, any other sector impacted by this energy crisis. Still, credit spreads are at 2016 levels, pretty wide, but not necessarily extremely wide. Earnings have been repriced down a little bit when it comes to cyclicals. But again, it seems to me that we are pricing in some justified pessimism, but the set of market metrics I looked at, I look at for understanding what the market is pricing in as a probability distribution, is pessimistic, but not exaggeratedly so. Now, what could actually turn this into a more positive outcome is a mild winter. Now, did I become a meteorologist or what? But actually, one way to predict whether Europe will end up having no energy left or make it through winter, at least in the short term, is whether temperatures will be mild or not through the winter. So together with production cuts that have been agreed across the block as we speak right now today on September the 7th, the other way would be for temperatures to be relatively high through winter, which means less gas usage. So the stock is very high, the flow is going to be very low because Russia basically delivers no flow through winter effectively. But that because of the usage being reduced by mild temperatures, Europe could muddle through. That's the short-term potential positive outcome. Over the medium term, though, if you look at the viability of an investment in a certain economic area like the Eurozone, you've got to wonder what will be the long-term solution to source energy, which once used to be very cheap, and it allowed countries like Germany to use this cheap energy to manufacture goods and to export them all over the world, whether these business models will continue to flourish. And there, you have to pair back some assumptions there, I guess. The same you have to do for Korea or for Taiwan or for any other jurisdiction that levered up on cheap energy to produce goods and export it through the world to globalize supply chains. Some of it has to be priced away, I think. So over the medium term, the palatability of Europe as a place to attract capital, I think has suffered a net-net negative hit here, although this could be a good opportunity to try and diversify the long-term energy generation sources so that Europe can become stronger over the medium term. There's so much talk in the U.S. about the Fed and how it interacts with markets. It's trying to solve this problem where the dual mandate is in conflict. It's now for the first time in years and years, trying to promote growth, but also to stave off this inflationary surge that we've had around the world. In Europe, it just seems much more difficult, just again, given the inherent fragility of the economies, the energy crisis, but also really trying to stave off this very unwanted inflation with what seems to be the view that you've got to do this. Help us sort of think through how the ECB will think about its mission on the inflation front with potentially imposing damage via tighter financial conditions, wrecking risk asset prices, 
How is the ECB going to try to navigate this, the trade-offs? Yeah, so the ECB is basically a delayed version of the Fed, if you ask me right now, Dean. So let's start from the Federal Reserve. So Powell was very clear in November, December last year that he was becoming seriously concerned about inflation. And he elaborated these serious concerns later on in 2022. I think it was April the first time he mentioned that. And I paid attention when he said, one of the ways that we will be clearly happy with transmitting tighter monetary policy is whether the real yield curve will all trade in positive territory. So that's U.S. real yield from two years all the way to 30 years. And as he said that, actually, front-end real yields were, were pretty negative. So the market was pricing in Fed funds to be at, I think, 2.5% was back then, maybe 3%. Inflation expectations were pretty elevated, 4 4.5% at the front-end, which made front-end real yields deeply negative, which is not the situation you want to be in if you're a central banker trying to fight inflation. You want to make sure that tighter conditions are passed through the private sector across tenors, across the entire curve. And they kept repeating that until the market paid attention. And I think the Jackson Hole speech was the clearest message, the most unambiguous message you could send from that perspective. The Fed is very concerned about inflation. They'll keep conditions tight long enough until they've actually won the war. Whatever it takes, they'll break the back of inflation. And now, in Europe, obviously, you had a much more delayed reaction function because if you look at the inflationary drivers in the U.S. and in the Eurozone, in the U.S., because of the gargantuan size of the fiscal stimulus, a higher proportion of the inflationary impulses were driven by demand. The New York Fed has recently published a paper which puts that demand component of inflationary pressures around about in the 50% area the rest being supply bottlenecks and energy-driven inflationary pressures. In Europe, this distribution is completely different. We're talking about maybe 20% demand-driven, the remaining 80% split between energy input costs and supply bottlenecks. So if you are the European Central Bank, naturally, you will be more inclined to weigh it through because you're going to hope that these inflationary pressures coming from supply and energy will dwindle at some point. But right now, you are basically trying to send the same message somehow that Powell tried to send in April this year. You're trying to say that you are going to be tight, that you take inflation very seriously, and that until you see results from the inflationary front, you are not going to stop your tightening process. So the ECB is trying to implement what the Fed did in April, and it's also reflected in, in forward rates and in terminal rates being priced in Europe, which are now all the way up to 2% front end in nominal terms. And yes, in the US, they're at three and a half to 4%, but there is also a structural difference between what the European economy can take and what the US economy can take. So in other words, neutral rates or estimate of neutral rates are different in Europe and in the US. So the ECB is trying to enact a tighter stance. They're late to gain, but you shouldn't, I guess, take them not seriously. They face the same problem the Fed faces. And the last point I want to make on central banks and the impact of pattern monetary policy to asset classes is that there are two ways to pass through this pattern monetary policy through the economy and financial markets. The first is the second derivative, so the pace of change of these financial conditions. Thing. So if financial conditions become from very loose to very tight, very, very quickly. So in other words, the pace of change of real yields, for instance, or of the dollar or of equity multiples or whatever other subcomponents of the financial condition index, if the pace of change is very rapid, you will see 
effects through financial markets and through the economy. And that's what we have seen in the first six months of the year, where the market has been caught by surprise by the pace of change of financial conditions. The second and I think less understood point or more overlooked anyway, is the time. So the length of these tighter financial conditions. And central banks are promising to actually keep these financial conditions tight for long. This is important because not every private sector agent takes its investment decisions, its liabilities, rollover decisions at the same time. And so if you take a highly leveraged company, a high yield issuer in Europe or in the US, if they were smart enough in 2021, they locked in 10-year yields or 20-year yields or 30-year yields at very favorable level for a high levered low investment grade rated company. Because in 2021, high yields, 10-year yields were roughly in the 4%, 5% area. Right now, we're talking about 9 to 10%. But the point is, if those companies were able to extend their liability, their duration of their liabilities, they don't necessarily need to refinance in the next six months. Maybe they can kick the can down the road. They can decide to refinance later. But if the length of these tighter financial conditions gets extended and the central bank wants to keep them tight for the entire 23, which is what we are hearing from the Fed, you can understand that the second lever of transmitting tighter financial conditions to markets. The first is the pace of change. The second is how long are these conditions going to remain tight? And central banks are pretty keen in keeping them tight until inflation slows down, not to 4%, which is what I'm hearing very often, that the new target and what they will be happy with is inflation at 3 to 4%. Mandate remains 2%. And you cannot regain credibility by moving your goalpost. You gain credibility by hitting your goalpost first, which is 2%, not 4%. Yeah, it's interesting. I go back to the US experience when Powell was tightening in 2017. That was one of the lowest vol periods on record in everything, really, rates, certainly in equities. And that was kind of tightening because you could. Inflation was still reasonably at or below target, and they had time. And obviously, by late 2018, just the market told them, hey, back off. And he had the flexibility to do so because inflation was still below target. This is just different. This is tightening because you have to. And so time can be of the essence. And this trade-off between trying to get out in front of it, as you said, get credibility back after this transitory debacle, but also not break things in the process is just a very delicate process. It's going to be very interesting to see how all this materializes. Well, Alf, this has been a great conversation. I want to end it with just learning a little bit more about your efforts through the Macro Compass and publishing. You've established a great following. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you're doing there, what the end goal is in terms of how you're communicating your thoughts on the big picture of risk. Tell us a little bit about the macro compass. So Dean, I left the institutional banking industry in December 2021. I had a very good run, a very fast career, but actually I wasn't really fulfilled about from what I was doing anymore, which was mostly running an institutional book and also a fast money version of that, if you wish, within the bank. But what I really wanted was to share as much as the knowledge I've had accumulated, also the models I was using, the macro view of the world I was having with as many people as I could reach. I saw that the amount, the sheer amount of knowledge and information which is available within the financial industry because of the network effects you can have, because you have the chance to talk to the smartest people out there, 
the difference between that depth and kind of knowledge and what somebody trading his own money or somebody investing for the long term in his 401ks or his private accounts is just enormous. And so my mission is to try to bridge that gap. I started publishing more frequently on the Macro Compass newsletter. It goes up once a week. And when I started the year, we probably were like 10,000 people reading me in January. We are now above 90,000, which probably puts me in one of the biggest macro reports, macro newsletters out there. The growth has been impressive, and I'm very happy with that. But I guess it just goes to show how much interest there is out there from the sophisticated retail crowd, but also from the very institutional crowd itself. I have many, many readers that are still in the industry, ranging from family offices, hedge funds, very, very well-known real money, large investors, because they're looking for an independent macro take of the world. And so what I think I have to offer is my curiosity that has always been there and the mistakes that I've made in running money and taking risks myself. And also the experience accumulated talking to the smartest strategists, investors, risk takers out there, understanding how they think about the world, what's their incentive scheme, how they allocate capital, all condensed in a weekly report that goes out, which takes maybe 15 minutes to read, and tries to provide some unique macroeconomic insights, some financial education. I've written a bond market 101 series trying to explain to people how to dissect bond market. Most importantly, some practical and actionable investment ideas that I think are sometimes missing in the picture out there when it comes to macro reports and this kind of information. Wonderful. I often say finance should come with a warning label because these markets can be dangerous and you've got to understand them and it's not easy stuff. So it's good that you're making this effort to inform people, share your process and be honest about some of the pitfalls that you've experienced over time and also play a role in education. So that's a job well done. Well, Alf, I appreciate you spending the hour with me here. Our guests will enjoy listening to you and learning about your career path and history and also this deep dive into Europe just on the central bank side, on the market price of risk. It's been excellent to have this conversation. So thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure, Bill, and congrats on Alpha Exchange and an excellent podcast. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, Your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.